So thank you for coming out this afternoon. It's my great joy to be here with you uh, this afternoon to present uh, these lectures, to have celebrated Mass already, and I look forward to meeting you during the um, break after this first session and uh, in the time after the second session as well. Hopefully everyone should have a handout uh, that you're able to get if you don't have one at the door. The handout gives a rough progression of the topics that I'm going to discuss, uh, gives some texts, also visual aids to help understand the material, and then finally at the back some possible further reading. So if you don't have a copy, please avail yourself of one. <coughs> In the Gospel at Mass, with which we began today's conference, we heard Christ say, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We rightly reverence the word of God, the word who is the second person of the Trinity, and the word that is his sacred scriptures. St. Jerome, a doctor of the church from the 4th and 5th centuries, St. Jerome is famous for having said, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. If we do not know the scriptures, if we do not hear the scriptures, if we ignore the scriptures, we ignore Christ. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Furthermore, ignorance of the sacraments is ignorance of Christ. St. Jerome would have held for that, so would the other fathers of the church. It's not just ignorance of the sacraments that is detrimental, it's any avoidance, abuse, or limitation of the sacraments that is detrimental. Today we want to explore why the ignorance and absence of the sacraments is so detrimental, or put more positively, why the reception of a sacrament is so beneficial. Our particular guide today for these conferences will be St. Thomas Aquinas. I do not intend to march through texts of Aquinas with you, rather I will give you a synthesis of his sacramental teaching. Most of it is contained in the material of the Summa Theologiae that I've listed on the back of your handout, the very first reference there, namely questions 60 through 65 of the Tertia Pars. You can find that online, it's very easy, just type in, Google it in, and voila, it arrives. I'm not going to even follow the sequential ordering of Thomas's questions. Rather, I want to reorder the material for our two-part conference. I hope everyone will be able to attend both conferences because, frankly, there is no strict subject division between uh, the first talk and the second talk. I see them as a combined whole. More or less, the first conference will examine the goods that flow from the sacraments, and the second conference will examine how we do the sacraments. Ignorance of the sacraments is ignorance of Christ. For the sacraments are Christ's extension of his incarnation, his presence to us living here and now. The sacraments extend Christ in two directions. First, the sacraments extend temporally or historically out, forward, from the saving events of Christ's life, especially his conception, his passion, and his resurrection. Second, the sacraments extend spatially, 
from Christ's current location in heaven to all of us here on earth, whether we're in New York or Beijing, uh, um, Tokyo or Beijing or wherever. To appreciate this incarnational extension that is the sacraments, we should take a moment to appreciate the incarnation itself. The incarnation of God as man in Christ Jesus is an astounding intervention of Christ into the history of his human creatures. One can marvel at the greatness of Christ in his incarnation. St. Paul said, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And elsewhere, St. Paul said, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So Christ is entirely God and entirely man. And all salvation comes from him both because he is God and because he is man. For this reason, Christ deserves all glory. And yet, and yet, despite the greatness of Christ, or rather because of the greatness of Christ, his incarnation is limited. Christ's humanity is like ours in all things but sin. That entails that his human physicality is limited by space and time. Christ's divine presence can be everywhere, but his human physical presence can normally be only somewhere at some time, not everywhere all the time. So Jesus walked in Palestine 2,000 years ago, not today. The humanity of Christ, the humanity that is so saving, the humanity that is so saving because it is so humble and capable of suffering on the cross for us out of obedience and love, that humanity offers problems for us today living in America. For if Christ died in Palestine 2,000 years ago, how does his gift of forgiveness and immortal life touch us today in New York? If salvation comes from Christ, and indeed it does, then salvation comes from contact with Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas taught that such saving contact occurs by various means. One of them, faith, is a purely spiritual reality. St. Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And as St. Paul said elsewhere, sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. So when a man or woman makes an act of faith in Christ and his salvation, a spiritual bond is established, a bond enlivened by divine power, a bond that is located in the immaterial human soul. Because the human person is constituted not just by an immaterial soul, but also by a material body, the purely spiritual contact of faith should find physical expression. When we recite the creed, for instance, our spiritual contact with Christ finds physical fulfillment. 
Furthermore, there is a second type of saving contact with Christ, the sacraments. Like the spiritual contact of faith, the sacraments are spiritual. And so Aquinas will speak of the spiritual contact of faith and the sacraments of faith. But the sacraments are a bit different than faith, generally speaking. The continuation of Christ's incarnation, that is, through faith, occurs through an act of the soul. But the continuation, that is, the sacraments, occurs through the use of exterior things. The sacraments involve physical actions with physical things in order to signify and therefore apply the saving reality of Christ here in today's world. Faith is primarily a spiritual act that should involve material expression. By contrast, a sacrament is a spiritual act that must involve material expression. One could speak of the sacraments, therefore, as mixed spiritual material contact with Christ. Inasmuch as the sacraments are both spiritual and material, one can speak of the sacraments as fitting within an incarnational paradigm by which God has always worked to save mankind. If one looks at how God interacts with human beings, one could imagine that God would take a purely spiritual approach, since God himself, as God, is purely spiritual. If we're supposed to be like God, if we're supposed to be in communication with God, then everything with God should work on a purely spiritual plane, right? Actually, that is not how God actually works with us, at least not how he normally works with us. God's interactions with us typically occur through things that are both spiritual and material. For instance, let's look at the Bible, first book of the Bible, Genesis. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were in big trouble after the fall. The book of Genesis says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why should Adam and Eve have tried to hide themselves from the God who is totally spiritual? Such was a crude but realistic response by Adam and Eve. For evidently, God had manifested himself in some sort of physical form. Else, how could they have heard his footsteps? How big are the feet of God? How loud are his footsteps? Evidently, there was something to hear, and they heard and hid. And then when God went on to speak to Adam and Eve, he communicated <coughs> spiritual realities and power, but evidently he spoke in some way that they could understand physically. Moving forward in Old Testament history, when God spoke to the ancient Israelites through the prophets, it was by a similar mix of the spiritual and the material. The truth and sayings of the prophets, for instance, Ezekiel's prophecies of doom for the Israelites because of their sins, or Isaiah's encouragement about a future Messiah. The truth and sayings of the prophets had a spiritual core, but their communication from God through the prophets, 
was physical. There were sound waves of certain frequencies, later communication through physical ink on physical parchment or physical paper, all with the particularities of Hebrew grammar and style. God did not speak English in the King James Version delivered before Christ. God descends to our level, our physical level, to communicate spiritual truths to us and to save us spiritually. Indeed, God uses the physical with us because he created us as physical beings in the first place. God's salvific enterprise is following his creative enterprise. As Aquinas said, grace perfects nature. The highest form of this mixed physical spiritual approach is the incarnation itself. And this event, the immaterial person of the word, the second person of the blessed trinity, assumed human nature. The word therefore assumed an immaterial human soul and a material human body. The Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms Christ's humanity appeared as a sacrament. That is, the sign and instrument of his divinity and of the salvation he brings. What was visible in his earthly life leads to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and redemptive, redemptive mission. Furthermore, when Christ revealed and enacted our salvation, he did so with the same physical, spiritual formula. Take Christ's preaching, for instance. Let's say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and following. Christ, as God, could have infused into the minds of each person around him various ideas and spiritual truths. Some <coughs> Rebecca on that mountain could have turned to her husband next to her and said, you know what, Isaac? I've just had this great idea. I think God has special blessings in store for various persons. If you're poor in spirit, Isaac, the kingdom of heaven, it's in your future. <coughs> and then Isaac could have turned to his wife, Rebecca, and said, you know, I had that idea too. And here's another pearl of wisdom for you, Rebecca. If you mourn, not because of me, Rebecca, but if you mourn in general, I think God will give you comfort. Our hypothetical Isaac and Rebecca did not receive the Beatitudes that way, however. Rather, Christ spoke to them physically in a particular form. He preached with tangible images, ones suited to his time and place, Images such as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. How poor we would be if Christ did not preach to us in that manner. Furthermore, when Christ worked his miracles, they could have been instantaneous spiritual conversions. Often, however, they were quite lavishly physical, quite lavish, lavishly physical. Think of the wedding feast of Canaan, John chapter 2. Jesus could have said, okay, uh, we know there's no wine. Um, okay, look, there's a sale on wine uh, going on today at Prophet Samuel's Club. 
disciples, let's start practicing how to take up a second collection, and we'll go buy out Sam's Club of all the wine, and then we'll bring it back and we'll be okay. Jesus did not do that. He did the more immediate and shocking transformation of water into wine using the six massive stone jars. Or take Jesus' healings, which provide some great examples of spiritual physicality. Sometimes Jesus healed with no evident physical run-up. For instance, when healing the ten lepers, or the slave of the centurion. At other times, Jesus used physical instruments. For instance, in Mark 7, we read, They brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they besought him to lay his hand upon him. And taking him aside from the multitude privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Christ's physical gestures were the means to communicate divine power, power that transcends the physical universe. Christ's physical gestures were the instrument of his humanity, which itself was the instrument of his divinity. St. Thomas Aquinas, over the course of his mature years, sensed the huge importance of this instrumentality of the humanity of Christ. It was an idea that had been explored centuries earlier by the Greek fathers, such as Saints Maximus the Confessor and John Damascene. It really had not made much headway in the West. <coughs> Aquinas discovered or recovered this idea for Western Europe, and then he extended the notion to other areas in theology, such as grace and the sacraments. More on that later. Christ, while walking this earth, knew that there would be a time when he had to depart from this world, return to the Father, and dwell in heaven. And yet he knew that his salvific mission needed to be extended to all peoples in all lands. He was able to do so much in preaching and working miracles to those lucky, fortunate individuals walking in Palestine at the same time as him. But more needed to be done. Christ's followers, the church, were to preach the gospel, leading all people to spiritual contact with Christ through faith. And just like God has done time and time before, just as Christ did in his earthly preaching and miracles, he knew that we weak, sinful human beings needed physical signs of God's transforming love. St. Thomas Aquinas explains Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, the fact that the Eucharist is truly Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. Aquinas writes the following. This reality belongs to Christ's love, out of which for our salvation he assumed a true body of our nature. And because it is the special feature of friendship to live together with friends, as Aristotle said, 
Christ promises us his bodily presence as a reward, saying, where the body is, there shall the eagles be gathered together. Meanwhile, in our pilgrimage, he does not deprive us of his physical presence, his bodily presence, but unites us with himself in this sacrament, the Eucharist, through the truth of his body and blood. Hence he says, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Hence this sacrament, the Eucharist, is a sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope from such familiar union of Christ with us. Christ's exposition of, excuse me, Thomas's exposition of Christ's Eucharistic friendship is immensely tender. This language of friendship exemplifies the Eucharistic devotion of Aquinas. Nonetheless, we can extend this language of friendship to all of the sacraments. Christ created the sacraments in order to extend his friendship and the gift of discipleship. The Eucharist is a sacrament that gives the real presence of our dearest friend, Jesus Christ. All the other six sacraments exert the real power of that same friend. As the Dominican Father Coleman O'Neill said in the title of one of his books, a book listed on the back page of your handout, Christ meets us in the sacraments. He meets us as a friend. He comes to us as a friend. Now, if we think about friendship, Friends love us as we are, but they do not leave us as we are. Christ is a transformative friend. The seven sacraments that he left his Catholic Church are seven means by which he heals us of our wounds and perfects us in his divine life. Christ taught us that we need to be baptized in water and the Holy Spirit in order to live again spiritually. He taught us to do his Eucharist as the memorial of his self-offering. He taught us to receive and give the Holy Spirit in a Pentecostal movement. In these and other ways, Christ's sacraments extend physically his royal friendship. When someone is adopted into a royal family, a certain amount of cleaning up and sprucing up, that, sprucing up of that person is normally needed. If you're going from being just a commoner, to wearing a crown. Chances are you need to clean things up. The same happens in the sacraments. The seven sacraments involve formal rituals whereby transformative grace is conferred. As I put on your handout, now we're getting to the beginning of page one, Thomas Aquinas gave the following compact definition of the sacraments. They are certain sensible signs of <coughs> invisible things by which a man is sanctified. Aquinas' definition of the sacraments has been taken up by the church's magisterium as the standard account of the sacraments. If we were to look at the current catechism of the Catholic Church, we would find the same Thomistic line. Here is the catechism's summary definition of the sacraments also given on your handout. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church 
by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit, and those who receive them with the required dispositions. My presentations today seek to unpack those definitions. A Protestant Christian could claim, well, all this sacraments business is a bunch of Catholic hocus-pocus. I've got the Bible, I've got faith, I'm doing great. Some Catholic Christians may claim, well, I don't want to impose Christianity upon my child through baptism. She can decide when she's older. Furthermore, why, Father, do I need to go to Mass every Sunday? Why do I need to receive Holy Communion on a regular basis? That's for pious fuddy-duddies. Aquinas responded to such questions by affirming how necessary it is for us to accept all of Christ's means of salvation and to try to work with them. It would be against Christ to refuse one of his gifts. However, should we not utilize a sacrament through no fault of our, excuse me, however, if we do not use a sacrament through no fault of our own, salvation is still possible, but it's rendered more difficult. An image may help to explain this qualified necessity of the sacraments. I will call it the analogy of building a house with the right tools. What I've put on your handout was <coughs> sacraments and the ultimate Catholic toolbox. Here goes. Earthly, earthly life for each one of us involves building a spiritual house. What kind of house would you like to build? When St. Paul described his ministry to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, he called himself a skilled master builder who had laid a foundation for the church in Corinth. Others, too, were involved in this building project. Paul wrote, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. For the individual houses that each of us is building, how good will our house build be? Will it be a hut made of straw or a mansion made of precious stones? Will it survive the storm of trial? Will it be fitting for a member of Christ's royal family? Christ has provided the blueprint for our homes, our mansions. That blueprint is the life and faith and morals of Christ's Catholic Church. And Christ has provided tools for enacting that blueprint. If you remember all the types of human dwellings on this earth, you could build a shelter without any tools, some sort of hut made of straw. It's going to have a difficult time standing up to bad weather, however. One could build a spiritual house of belief in God, but without the aids of divine revelation or the sacraments. One could be that noble tribesman in the Amazon who has never heard of Christ, the tribesman who works with his God-given reason 
and the natural law to believe in God and to act justly. The Church has said that such a person can be saved by the mercy of God, just as God saves all of us by his mercy. That tribesmen's spiritual house, however, may be quite limited in size and grandeur. For figuratively, he has had only his hands and other rudimentary tools at his disposal. In contrast, someone else may have some tools of divine revelation, for instance, the Jewish man or woman who has the Old Testament and its covenants with the Lord God. That's good. These are tools, better tools than one's own hands. Let's say a handsaw, for instance. Protestant Christians can do even better at building their houses. They have the New Testament and the sacrament of baptism. These are power tools. Only the Catholic Christian has the ultimate toolbox with all of the power tools that could ever possibly be made. Sacraments are part of that ultimate toolbox. So are the Catholic Church's teachings on faith and morals, the lived charity of the Catholic community, and the pastoral guidance of the Catholic clergy. With this toolbox, with the ultimate power tools, the Catholic is not lounging around on vacation, however. He still has work to do. He still needs to build his house. But he can build a better house with greater ease. Furthermore, his tools always work. One of the problems with substandard toolboxes is that the tools sometimes are defective and can cause positive harm to one's construction project. For instance, Episcopalian baptism is true baptism, and that's great. But it's like a circular power saw that has a wobbly attachment, a wobbly disc. It doesn't cut perfectly straight. In fact, its cuts are jagged and swervy. Entrance into the Episcopalian community through Episcopalian baptism has advantages, and that's great. But it also has the defect of instilling a mindset that is against the Pope and the Catholic bishops, and nowadays against many moral teachings of Christ with respect to marriage and the family. So all that being said, who would not want the ultimate toolbox? The seven Catholic sacraments given to us by Christ are part of those ultimate power tools, part of the means for us to build a mansion fit for an adopted son or daughter of God. So what exactly do these sacramental power tools accomplish? What are the graces of the sacraments? What are the effects that we receive from them? How do they transform us? Any divine grace is a participation in God's own life, the life of the most blessed trinity. God can give grace in a multitude of ways. A preacher can be an instrument for grace via the communication of the gospel, for instance. A mother can be an instrument of grace by teaching the faith to her children. A father can be an instrument of grace by leading his family in prayer before and after meals. On a structural level, grace is given by God through the infused theological and moral virtues. Faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. 
Grace is also given in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These help us in the different ways that a woman or man can be sanctified and can do holy actions. Nonetheless, St. Thomas teaches that there are certain needs that are fulfilled only by the graces of the Catholic sacraments. Sacramental grace can have a healing quality in that it liberates us from sin or from the harmful after-effects of sin. For instance, the sacraments of baptism and penance can transform us from being in the state of mortal sin to being in the state of grace, justifying us, giving us sanctifying grace, giving us the habit of grace. All of the sacraments can free us from venial sins and from those tendencies to sin that all of us have, what's called concupiscence. More positively, sacramental grace perfects us so that we can worship God aright. So the sacraments heal us, get us back to ground zero, if you will, but also boost us into positive territory, territory beyond what Adam and Eve were able to do. If any of you know the Baltimore Catechism, you know from the first question and answer that we were created by God to know, love, and serve him in this life and in the next. The sacraments perfect us so that we're worthy of so noble a calling. For instance, in order to be a stable member of God's family, an adopted son or daughter of the Father, we need the grace of baptismal character conferred in the sacrament of baptism. It is then, within the family, within the covenanted people of God, within the church of God, that we are able to worship God in spirit and truth. When Christ confers grace through a sacrament, he does so through a chain of instruments. I've sketched out that chain on the bottom of page one on your handout. St. Thomas Aquinas played a huge role in helping us to understand this chain of sacramental causality. Remember how I said earlier that Aquinas followed and expanded upon earlier Greek theologians in teaching that Christ's human soul and body are instruments of Christ's divinity? Well, now we want to see how that theological expansion occurred. Theologians prior to Aquinas had a hard time understanding how the sacraments conferred grace. They were trying to present, per, excuse me, they were trying to preserve a number of important truths. They knew that God is spiritual, that the human soul is spiritual, and that the soul's gracious participation in the divine life is spiritual. So a number of spiritual realities. Furthermore, they knew that there is a divide between God and his physical creation. Therefore, these theologians figured, since all of these things are spiritual, God, the human soul, grace, since all these things are spiritual, Grace can only be given by God directly to a human soul with no physical intermediary. So, if you were to look at these various things that I put on your handout, God as divine, Christ in his humanity, a sacramental minister, a sacramental rite, a sacramental recipient. Earlier theologians thought that God bypasses steps one, or two, three, and four, and goes directly to the sacramental recipient. 
This is what's called the occasionless theory of sacramental causality. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, living in the 12th century, was such a person who held for this theory. Basically, St. Bernard and contemporaries thought that yes, Christ did institute the sacraments. Yes, a sacramental minister has to be involved in doing a sacramental rite. Yes, there is a sacramental rite that needs to be done. But that is just the occasion for the giving of grace. God does an end run around all of those other persons, Christ, the sacramental minister, the physical action of the sacramental rite, and God gives grace directly to the sacramental recipient. So the sacramental rite still has to be done, but God really isn't using it to give grace. A second theory came up after St. Bernard. This is now the late uh, 12th century, early 13th century. Second theory said, well, Perhaps there is something going on in the sacramental recipient when the sacramental rite is done to a person. The sacramental rite disposes the person to receive God's grace, but the grace itself, eh, we still don't think it can be given directly through a physical means. So they said grace is still given, by what I'm calling an end run, directly from God to the sacramental recipient. With dispositive causality, this understanding that the sacramental rite, the sacrament opens up, disposes the person to the gift of grace, thinkers did not sufficiently appreciate the power of Christ's humanity to be an instrument of God's salvation. These thinkers, if you will, evacuated Christ's humanity of its power, its full power. St. Thomas Aquinas held for this theory, this idea that the sacraments dispose us for the sacraments for grace without actually giving us grace. He held this when he was a young man. But Aquinas, reading the Greek fathers, realized that Christ's humanity, even in its physicality, is the instrument for the communication of spiritual grace. Recognizing that Christ's human flesh and blood were used by Christ's divinity to communicate spiritual grace, Aquinas was able to understand that the material can be involved in the communication of the spiritual, spiritual grace. He saw that, Aquinas saw this with respect to Christ, and then he extended that principle to the sacraments. So the sacraments, even in their physicality, can be and are the instruments of grace. This is what's called perfective sacramental causality. So if you were to look at the handout, what happens in the sacraments is that God, as divine, purely spiritual, works through Christ in his physical humanity, who works through a sacramental minister, let's say a priest, working through a particular sacramental rite, which is physical, in order to give grace to a physical sacramental recipient. The theory is called perfective because the sacramental rite perfects the soul, completes the soul in divine grace. Thomas based his new sacramental approach on the Bible and sacred tradition. 
From both sets of data, Aquinas pointed out how Christian belief holds that the sacraments can convey directly God's holiness, namely his forgiveness and sanctification. Using biblical data, Aquinas pointed, for instance, to the sacrament of baptism. Aquinas said, let's look at what St. Paul says in Galatians 3. Paul says, as many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Aquinas said, a man is made a member of Christ through grace alone. Therefore, if the ritual of water baptism incorporates one into Christ, God must be using the washing with water to confer spiritual grace. God is not doing an end run around the water. God is using the water, the water ritual of baptism, in order to perfect the sacramental recipient, the baby, the adult who is being baptized. Another example would be the Eucharist. This sacrament, using the signs of bread and water, gives the living Christ, the Christ who gives his life to those who receive him sacramentally. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. John 6. So that's biblical data. Aquinas also noticed how the church fathers, the early Christians, practiced the sacraments. He saw there a recognition of the direct conferral of grace through the physical rites. Aquinas looked at St. Augustine, who said that the baptismal water touches the body and cleanses the heart. Now, have you ever seen a baptism where the priest has to open up the chest in order to get into the heart and baptize the heart? No. What Augustine is talking about is that the water touches the body and the heart is cleansed spiritually. Aquinas says, the heart is not cleansed save through grace. Therefore, the water causes grace. Aquinas would conclude, we have it on the authority of many saints that the sacraments of the new law not only signify, but also cause grace. In other words, the sense of the faithful is that the physical acts that our sacraments perfect us in spiritual grace. Sometimes, if you read Aquinas, he may seem very sophisticated in his theological formulations. But we cannot forget that Aquinas has a simple faith, which is the best faith, the faith that anyone can have, the faith that humbly accepts what God does without siding with the wisdom of the worldly man. Aquinas' theology is so Catholic because Aquinas takes the faith in simplicity and removes obstacles to its belief. He shows the faith's intelligibility <coughs> using the best philosophical and theological reasoning. In other words, Aquinas figured out the philosophical and theological distinctions that are best able to account for the faith of the church. And that's what's happening with Aquinas' account of how the sacraments give us grace. Ironically, Theologians and the church did not take notice of Aquinas' teaching on this subject for about 250 years. 
So Aquinas wrote these thoughts, what I've sketched out at the bottom of page one. He wrote those thoughts in the last year or two of his life in the Summa Theologiae. However, the standard textbook of his time was another book. It's called The Sentences of Peter Lombard. And so since professors and students had to read that uh, sentences, those sentences, if they wanted to figure out what Aquinas thought, those professors and students tended to read Aquinas' commentary on the sentences. Kind of save time, so you know, if they're running off the class, just kind of read the cliff notes. <laughs> the problem is, Aquinas changed his mind. He developed his thoughts. 25 years after writing his commentary on the sentences, he wrote his Summa. And no one noticed the difference until a Dominican of the 16th century, 250 years later, Cardinal Cajetan noticed and said, uh, folks, uh, attention, we have a difference here. Thomas's later thought is different than his earlier thought, and you know what? This later thought is a better explanation of the sacraments. Oh, and by the way, this is also handy with the Protestant reform that's going on now. This is a good refutation. Because of this and other reasons, the Summa became the standard textbook for Catholic theologians. We all want a perfect family, perfect friends, and a perfect life. The sacraments help us in these respects. They have been instituted by Christ, our brother and friend, who is both divine and human. The sacraments create friendship and deepen friendship with Christ. They also create friendship and deepen friendship with the saints <coughs> and all members of the church. They depend upon faith and deepen faith. They strengthen us with unique graces, graces for this life and the next. The Catholic Christian life may not be the easiest physical life on earth, Indeed, the Catholic Christian life may involve a great dealing of physical suffering. But the sacraments can help us to have the perfect spiritual life, using the physical for spiritual gain.